0: Welcome to the Y Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, portfolio manager at Waverton. In this episode, we're talking about jewellery with my guest Sophie Brightmail. Sophie is the founder of an independent family jeweller based in Notting Hill, bearing her own name, Sophie Brightmail. She was a great guest, and it was interesting to hear how she works with her clients, making bespoke jewellery at pivotal moments of their lives. We also discuss how she got into jewellery design, the sourcing and the pricing of raw materials and what makes her proposition different to her competitors. It was also interesting to hear how she's managed throughout the lockdown and switched her model online. Do check out her website at SophieBreitmeyer.com. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Sophie Breitmeyer, welcome to the podcast. Sophie, how did you start your career?
1: I started my career, when I was a child, I was apparently quite creative and therefore sort of needed to channel that somehow. And with a family history in the jewellery industry, jewellery kind of seemed like the most obvious sort of route for me. And so very much looked sort of directly with the help of my parents at exploring how you got into the jewellery industry and therefore ended up doing a mixture of kind of art school and work experience in a workshop. So I actually trained as a goldsmith rather than sort of going down the gemology route.
0: And where did you train and where did you sort of learn the craft?
1: So I went to Central St. Martins, which is a kind of fashion and art school based in London that has a jewellery degree. And then I did the kind of work experience side of things in a workshop just off Bond Street called H.A. Jordan, which gets to work with some pretty amazing Sotheby's and S.J. Phillips jewellery.
0: And then at what point did you decide that you wanted to go it alone?
1: I went it alone pretty much directly out of St. Martin's in that I had been offered a couple of freelance design shop, like jobs on the back of my degree show, as well as being awarded something called Bright Young Gems, which is sort of an award for new people coming into the industry that year. And so it sort of seemed like the most obvious route to kind of go it alone from the beginning.
0: And what do you think makes a great jewellery designer? What's the skill set that's needed to be one of the grades?
1: This is going to sound awful, but I actually, like having studied quite a lot of jewellery, I generally think that from the design side of things, women are probably better jewellery designers where the guys and
0: that's sexist
1: i know it's so sexist but women know how to like women wear jewelry and so they tend to have a slightly more delicate hand when it comes to designing it Um, which may not be that you know it's not the be all and end all but it does seem to be that you know wearing jewelry definitely gives you a kind of sensibility Mm -hmm. about how people might want to wear it
0: Mm-hmm. And then the skills that are needed. So is it a, a creative eye? Is it the ability to think creatively about what you can do with particular stones or particular metals? What do you think is the sort of secret sauce needed?
1: I think actually my experience sitting at a jewellery bench, which is what you call a jeweler's desk, is probably the most like formative experience that I've had in that As a designer, then you know exactly what the materials are capable of doing. So you understand, you know, how metal can be manipulated, what the kind of limits are to it and how you can sort of apply design from that point of view.
0: Can you give an example? So can you give an example Uh, of where the limits are?
1: Uh, Let me give an example. Actually, one of the sort of biggest things is how the stones that you can use within metal and how those kind of reacts probably not the right word, but things like emeralds are incredibly soft. And so when it comes to setting them, it takes a much more delicate hand and there are definitely metals that are easier to set things like emeralds in than others. And that equally kind of comes to wearing jewelry. You know, if you've got mm-hmm. an emerald, it's probably not something that you should be wearing every day just because the material itself is mm-hmm. very fragile.
0: And then, so if you're turning to your business, self-named business, Sophie brightmayer and I'd uh, urge anyone to check out your website mm. at com. What do you think makes your business different to some of the competition?
1: I think that m- what makes us different is actually it comes down to this idea of being a family jeweler. And so what's incredibly important to me is mine and my client's relationship with sort of one another and building this kind of familial feel where they become a member of sort of the SB family. And they very much we see them at all their kind of life's big moments. And it's someone that you sort of feel comfortable with, you can come back to repeatedly. It's all that idea of family and how we make our clients feel really comfortable and want to keep coming back repeatedly.
0: Mm -hmm. Where is your studio? And can you give me an idea of what your studio looks like? And where do you operate from?
1: So we have a small shop in Notting Hill and the basement of which is our kind of studio where we operate from. And this is decorated so that it feels like you've walked into someone's house and not that terrifying, stark white, big, shiny cabinet jewellery store. So you immediately walk in and feel maybe more at home than you would somewhere else.
0: Are your competition doing that? Because I mean, it sounds to me like, That would be a welcome change from the slightly stuffy, slightly intimidating atmosphere that you get in many other jewelry shops.
1: Uh, I think that, I think it's definitely something that sort of, there's a few younger jewelers who are coming out who've realized that actually building a relationship with the client and creating a space where clients feel really comfortable is really important. But I would hope that the shop that we've got here feels really unique. It's a really lovely experience to come here. You're sort of greeted by my dog, Hackle, the moment you walk in. Men can come in and sort of have a beer. Girls can come in and have a glass of champagne. And it's just all about comfort.
0: And tell me, when you think about your client base, who are your ideal type of clients? And, you know, again, are you trying to sort of segment the market and go, hey, look, this is the kind of client we're looking for? um, Or are you a pretty broad church?
1: I don't think there's such thing as an ideal client. I mean, obviously, we love it when someone comes in with a very big budget. But equally, you know, the whole idea is that no matter who you are, where you've come from, how much you want to spend, we're here to kind of help you and make this a really lovely experience, whether, you know, you've got a relatively small budget, and we're sort of working out what the best ways to extend that is and make sure that you get the best thing you can, or whether you've got a much larger budget, and you know exactly what you're looking for. And you're very specific about sort of things like the four C's when you're buying a diamond. So it's not so much about the ideal client, it's more about, you know, everyone's welcome and trying to make this a little bit aspirational, but not unobtainable.
0: Let's stay on the four C's of diamonds. What are the four C's and why do they matter?
1: The four Cs are a consumer guide to help you when you're buying diamonds, and they are the cut the color, the clarity, and the carrot of a stone and so in terms of you know when you're buying something like an engagement ring, the majority of your budget is going towards the center stone and so understanding what these four cs mean is very important from a kind of investment point of view. Mm-hmm. My kind of advice as a jeweler is always to, you know, look at the stones in front of you and choose the one you love in that sometimes you can get quite wrapped up in the paperwork sort of associated to the four C's. But they're really helpful in terms of trying to explain what the kind of indicators to price are and how these vary across two stones that might look quite similar, but on paper are very, very different.
0: I mean, it's a daunting experience, having gone through it myself. It's a daunting experience thinking about um, buying jewellery for a significant other. What percentage of of engagement rings are bought with both the couple there?
1: Yeah. So to be honest, probably about 80% of the rings we do, I do have quite a heavily kind of engagement ring dominated business at the moment probably about 80% of them is just the guy by himself without the girl involved. I mean, quite often he will come in having had a few like nudges and hints and you must go and see this person or I particularly like this one. But it is still inherently quite an old fashioned industry in that quite often we meet men who are by themselves about to go into this process and designing something or buying something really beautiful for their other half.
0: Mm. And how do you do it? How do you approach it? Do you say, okay, look, what's your budget? Or do you say, okay, what's the, what do you want? Or presumably, it's quite a delicate <laughs> conversation. Yeah,
1: it is indeed without sort of wanting to go right to the kind of finance point first. For me, it's quite important for whoever we're working with to say where they're comfortable price point wise, in that with jewellery, there is a 1000 ways to make it more expensive. <laughs> And consequently, there's a thousand ways to make it a bit more cost effective. And so I go in pretty quickly on where someone wants to sit price point wise in that if I know this, I'm going to show them stuff that's completely tailored to that, that doesn't make them feel kind of uncomfortable or like I'm trying to sell them something that's twice what they wanted to spend. And everybody kind of knows where they stand from the get go. And so for us... Budget is very important. I mean, having a rough idea of where you want to sit in terms of design is also quite important. But finance does kind of come in pretty quickly.
0: I'm sure. And how else do you put the buyer at ease? It's a nerve-wracking experience,
1: yeah? It is a nerve-wracking experience. and You do see guys come in and they like super anxious. And then as we sort of go through the process... I start to talk about the four C's, you can see them sort of visibly relax and be like, okay, this isn't quite as terrifying as I thought it was. But a lot of what we do is actually educating the client on what all of the tiny little things within a piece of jewellery mean, how those affect cost, you know, what happens if they went smaller and sparklier, what happens if they went kind of bang for buck, the biggest stone that they could get for their budget. So mm. a lot of it is about educating the client. And making sure the client feels really comfortable, making sure they can ask as many questions as they want. Believe me, I've heard it all. And
0: what are the kind of what are the maybe typical and, and maybe less typical questions that you asked?
1: I mean the first one is always, can I afford it? Which of course, yes, you know, as I said, we tailor everything to a budget. And then the big the next one is obviously it has to be sparkly. And how do we make it sparkly? And so from that point of view, it's educating them as to what kind of what the sparkle means and what you can do to increase that.
0: And turning to the operations of your business, where do you source your your stones and your metals?
1: So we actually source and buy most of the stones, metals, materials in London, but they come from across the globe. So we work with a network of dealers in terms of the stones that are, I mean, everywhere from kind of, New York, to Thailand, Australia, South America. And quite often, there are a couple of sort of developments in the industry by which getting stones into the country sort of through dealers is a lot easier than it maybe once was. And so actually, the network that we can use in terms of sourcing something for a client is huge, but most of it sort of comes from dealers in the UK.
0: And how do you ensure uh, or protect yourself against counterfeits?
1: Uh, So I think from my point of view, it's obviously me being educated in knowing what we're buying and what we're sourcing. And then also we work with a whole bunch, you know, the dealers that we do work with on the diamond side of things they all adhere to something called the Kimberley process, which means that to the best of their knowledge, everything that they're selling has come from legitimate sources that aren't funding conflict.
0: I mean, over the last, since since you've been operating, has have the sort of regulations around precious stone dealing tightened up?
1: Well, I think so. I think that it's an ongoing process in order to ensure that both the metal that we're using and the stones that we're using have come from legitimate sources. They are sustainable. They are not funding conflict, anything like that. And I do think that as an industry, it's sort of a process that we're ever evolving and ever looking to sort of change, update, see how we can kind of ensure that, you know, Everything is sustainability is a big one at the
0: moment in the industry. I don't want to dwell on sort of finance for too long, but you know, how do you think about costing? Because presumably, a lot of your raw materials uh, or the cost of your raw materials are pretty volatile. They're commodity based or they're you know diamond based, and your costs therefore are going up and down. Presumably, there's a sort of labour factor that goes into it. But I wonder if you can help me understand how you arrive at your prices.
1: So. One of the big things in terms of pricing for us is consistently the dollar rate actually is probably the most kind of volatile part of costing in that that is ever moving. In terms of the like metal kind of commodities, the prices that are varying at sort of the markets level, by the time it's coming to us, the price variation is actually very, very small over a larger period of time, if that makes sense. Mm in that the average engagement ring probably weighs five grams. And so when you get down to that price point, actually the material prices aren't altering as much as they are at a market level, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we're consistently, you know, we work on a system by which when we're quoting clients, you know, the quote that I give you today probably isn't going to be the same in six months' time. So there's a sort of finite amount of time that a quote will last. Mm -hmm. But the materials, you know, in terms of the stone dealers, they work on a system by which when they give us the stone, they set the price and they can't change that, you know, while we have the stone.
0: And then how does labour part sort of feed into it? I mean, is there a sort of spectrum of complexity?
1: Yeah, there is. And some of the work, you know, some of the guys who I used to make it all myself and I don't make it all myself any longer. I've got an amazing team of craftsmen up in Hassan Garden and some of the guys who we work with are hugely skilled at what they're doing. And so there is an expense obviously associated to the craftsman side of it or the actual making of it. But there isn't a huge amount of variance in cost there. So it's quite easy for me as a business to be able to price what things are going to cost to make, even if the material prices are, are varying somewhat. I've always worked on a system by which we mark up our materials and the labor costs rather than charging design fees, because I never want a client to sort of be three quarters of the way through the process and want to make changes but not make those changes because it's going to cost them money to make those changes. Mm-hmm. I want a client to feel like they can say, oh, God, maybe it's not quite right. Could we make it a bit smaller, a bit bigger, a bit higher? You know, what happens if we made the band a little bit wider? Mm-hmm. I don't want them to feel like that's going to impact the final cost in order to get the ring that they really want to or the necklace.
0: And just going back to something you said earlier on on being a family jeweller, why do you think it's really important that part of your business why do you think it's important to be a, a family jeweler rather than a sort of more commoditized jeweler perhaps I or a sort of mass market jeweler perhaps
1: i think if you think about the big moments in life when jewelry are bought there's quite often a huge amount of sentiment attached to jewelry and quite a lot of that sentiment is familial so the idea of being a family jeweler is very much based around that concept. I mean, I came into the industry because my family was in the industry a very long time ago. A lot of the clients I'm working with are, they're engaged, they're married, they have their first child, they're celebrating big anniversaries. And all of that, if you think about it, it's just the center of it is family. And that's why for me, Being the sort of modern day family jeweler was such an important thing. This wasn't jewelry that people were going to buy. You know, it's not, I think they call it demi fine jewelry now, where it's sort of slightly more fashion brand led. This isn't about being on trend. This is about creating jewelry that is going to be as wearable today as it is in 50 years' time.
0: That's an interesting distinction. And in the last 12, 14 months have been um, challenging for most retail participants, people who are working in retail. Um, I'm curious to know how your business has coped during the lockdown brought about as a result of the COVID crisis.
1: Uh, So, we moved into a shop in January 2020, which in hindsight was interesting timing.
0: Interesting timing.
1: (laughs) Um, Little did I know that three months later, before I'd even sort of paid my first quarter's rent, were we going to be shut on and off for the next. I think we were shot in the end for ten out of fifteen months. So it's been a bit of a it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. I have no idea what's coming around the corner. What we've experienced has been quite weird. In that, obviously, during lockdowns, I have an online side to the business, and that's grown quite a lot during the lockdown periods. In that, that was the only way people could shop, and then. There's this sort of mad thing that's happened both very recently as well as last summer, where we've come out of lockdown and people have been like, I want to propose and I want to propose yesterday. It
0: kind of went both ways. I mean, it either went, I want to propose and I want to propose yesterday, or I want to get out and I want to get out yesterday.
1: I've got a great friend who's a family lawyer, and we were discussing the fact that we're at both ends of that spectrum. (laughs) There's been a certain sense of urgency to people wanting to buy stuff coming out of lockdown. And there also actually has been a slight increase in people's budgets when we have come out of lockdown in that if you're lucky enough to have not been furloughed, you've consistently worked throughout a period where you haven't been going on holiday, you haven't been eating out, sort of drinking quite what you may normally do. People have had a little bit of extra pocket money, I think.
0: I see. That's good. And tell me about the the shift to online. You know, what percent, what's the sort of breakdown of online and offline sales that you do or did during lockdown and then do now?
1: I mean, so pre kind of lockdown, we were very much, I don't know, 80-20 in terms of 80% people coming into the shop. Quite a lot of that being bespoke and then 20% online. And that obviously shifted, especially in the last lockdown to probably 50-50. I know that, you know, in terms of like business growth and where we're going, I know that we're pretty much at capacity at what we can take on in terms of bespoke work. Therefore, the area of my business that sort of has the most potential going forward, actually, now that I've built a kind of house style and a client base is actually very much the sort of online and the ready to wear side of things.
0: Mm-hmm. What percentage then again is is bespoken whats sort of ready to wear and I'm not sure I mean my terminology is going to be terrible here, but is it you know off the shelf? Yeah yeah a yeah. few. Oh,
1: yeah yeah so it is off it's so ready to wear is effectively off the shelf and then it's stuff that we quite often have in stock now being predominantly a bespoke jeweler, quite a lot of that is you know engravable or you can choose the center stone color, little things like that so you can mm-hmm. sort of make it one of a kind whilst it being fundamentally an off-the-shelf product. And so we're probably we're probably at the stage now where the business is maybe 70-30 going forward in mm-hmm. terms of bespoke work versus ready-to-wear stuff. So it's mm-hmm. still a lot of, you know, I hope that one day we can maybe get it to a sort of 50-50 level. So, well,
0: let's think about the future. Where would you like to see the business in, in, say, five years' time? And maybe you can think about it either in terms of bespoke, off-the-shelf split or online-offline split? Uh, and, and would you want to see more sort of bricks-and-mortar premises?
1: I think that in five years' time, I would hope that we build the off-the-shelf and the ready-to-wear side of things over the next five years. And that, as I said, this is the area of the business that there's definitely the possibility to kind of develop, grow. I think that probably in five years' time, we may not be in my very sweet little shop in Notting Hill in that it's already becoming, you know, we've got someone new joining the team next week and actually working out desk space whilst having clients in here is becoming a bit of an issue already. And so I think probably we will be in a slightly different premises. I'd love to be able to, I've got a fairly good international client base at the moment, I'd love to be able to develop that a bit more and to work out sort of how you grow the business, maybe internationally whilst sort of remaining an inherently British business.
0: Mm. And do you have any businesses or brands that you kind of really look up to and want to emulate, not necessarily in the, in the jewelry space, but sort of see as a model for your own business perhaps?
1: Yeah. I think in terms of the sort of fashion industry, companies like, Alice Templey and Anya Heimarsh are very, very good examples of kind of small British brands that started off with a more bespoke product as such and then have developed into, you know, really quite big companies today. So I think, you know, Anya Heimarsh is very much in the accessories area and Templey is very much kind of fashion bridal wear. And I think those are two quite good examples of sort of inherently very British businesses that have expanded internationally.
0: Final question, Sophie, what advice would you give to some of our younger audience who are perhaps still at the university or looking to pursue a career in the jewelry sector or indeed something creative? What advice would you give to them?
1: I think that going to art school was actually an amazing thing for me in that it gave me the opportunity to explore what I really wanted to do and develop that idea In terms of advice for someone starting out, I had some advice from another jeweler when I first started who said you have a choice of sort of either going it out by yourself straight away. You know, you have no money, you learn the hard way, you develop a business from the ground up, which is sort of what we've done. Or you go and get a lot of experience somewhere else working underneath someone else and then you have the sort of hard step of actually you know, taking a step back from that and starting from the beginning when you've got a lot more experience, maybe you won't make the same mistakes that you would have if you'd started at an earlier point. And I think no matter which way you do it, it's not going to be the easiest ride. But that, you know, with something like the jewellery industry, it just never gets old. So I get to work with incredibly pretty things every day. And I get to work with incredibly happy clients.
0: Well, it's a nice place to finish. Sophie Brightmare. thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much
0: for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Sophie Brightmayer. Do check out Sophie's website at sophiebrightmayer.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not rate it or subscribe to it and certainly tell your friends. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.